modes of thought in Interran literature. Second year classics, Harvard University. to send it over to IT. Thank you. Just email me the file after class and I'll get it posted. All right. Okay, so let's uh, let's get into it, yeah? Okay, hi everybody. Um, today we're going to Broach a subject that I'm guessing none of us want to go anywhere near this Thanksgiving break. That's right, we're talking politics. A subject that does not go well with turkey or family or alcohol. Uh, what we're discussing in this context, though, is the earliest establishment of a political structure, how and why these structures evolve, and what we see in Antara as relates to political structures. Now, we've talked about the idiot king before, so we know there's a governmental structure that we recognize, a, a kingdom, right? But we haven't really discussed how we get to the idiot king and also where it goes as we enter the Third Empire. So, you know, let's dig into it a little bit. Um, it starts with food, at least that's what we think. And to be clear, when we talk about early civilizations, we are fully in speculation mode. So just be aware. Yeah. Okay. Agriculture. Agriculture requires cooperation, which means a group of people. The larger the group, the more food you can produce and also the more food you need. But if you get too many people living in one place, there's a whole host of problems that start to occur, right? You have disease, sanitation, the land can run out of resources locally. And of course, there's something of an emotional angle too, as you all probably noticed the first year when you moved into Claymacher Hall, right? When it gets cramped, temperatures can run a little hot. Sound familiar? Right. Okay, so looking back at early settlements we've discussed before um, from the prehistoric record, such as Chitalhoyuk, they estimate a population of 5,000 to 7,000 people were living together in some kind of cooperative harmony before the city dissolved uh, for unknown reasons, but probably speculation here, right? Probably because the land couldn't support them anymore. Lack of resources. Um, the question we want to ask, or at least that I want to ask, 
is how does Shanghai work, right? Has anyone here been to Shanghai? It's amazing, right? 26 million people currently live in Shanghai. That is three New York cities. Why is it that in prehistory, we couldn't survive a grouping of 7,000, but now we can have 26 million souls living neck to jowl? I have a thought, and we'll come to that, but let's look at the past and see what didn't work. One place I keep coming back to uh, when I think about the earliest kingdoms is Mesopotamia. Obviously, we have a lot more information, um, both archaeological and even some biological, to work with when we're talking about Mesopotamia than when we're talking about Antara. <clears throat> but there's a good chance that the formation of these early political structures have some parallels with Antara. And yeah, in Mesopotamia, it was food that led to the earliest tribes. Okay? They had a word for good farmers, Lugal, which literally means big man. <laughs> uh, so the best farmers became the Lugal, the leaders of towns and tribes. Interestingly, if you look at the creation myths of Sumer and Babylon, for instance, there's a link between the gods and the food supply. This isn't news. We've, we, we've seen this in many different cultures. There's so many gods of harvest and gods of fertility. Um, but as the Lugal formed more solidified tribes, they also developed a priest class and what we're speculating here is that that priest class was tied to food production. So now you have a big man and his priest advisor, and now it's starting to look like a government, <clears throat> right? Especially in Babylon, with the preeminence of the god Marduk, god of all gods, the apex deity. So now everyone has to please, or at least not piss off, this one particular god, and it was up to the big man and the priests to decide who was on the right side of Marduk. And remember, food production was what was held in the balance. Disrespect Marduk, and we all might starve. So this collective intention around food production creates a societal structure that, in this case, and in honestly, most cases, is a sort of, well, is a sort of top-down hierarchy. Um, what would Karl Marx say about all of this? He'd be pissed. Um, so, okay, we think this is the birth of the notion of a divine ruler. Um, so interesting, right? By which I mean, this is the earliest confluence of religious leadership and political leadership morphing into one entity, which is the concept of divine right. The leader knows what God wants. That's an insane concept to me. Um, but if the king or the big man, the Lugal, has direct access and consent of the gods, or later single god, 
and therefore gain some kind of exquisite infallibility, the entire collective living together under this particular ruler has to agree. They have to go with the flow. Um, and, you know, we got to remember here, we were still dealing with this notion of divine right of a king when the Bolsheviks toppled Nicholas II in 1917. According to the Russian Orthodox Church, at that point, Tsar Nicholas II was divinely appointed to be the leader of the Russians. 1917. That is fucking recent. <laughs> um, shocking. Okay, one more thing on Mesopotamia, which is the code. Now, we know about the code. Famously, we'll focus on Hammurabi's code, uh, which you all know about. This is the origination of the phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Hammurabi didn't come up with this. Uh, it was someone before him. We don't need to know that. Uh, but he's the one who wrote it down. And that codification, that set of rules, grew, was expanded upon. Uh, there were variations between Sumer, Akkadia, and Babylon. But it essentially created a reliable set of predictable rules for social interaction and the consequent punishments for transgressions of those rules. What does that mean? I think, this is what I was saying I was going to get to, I think those rules, and particularly the predictability, the expectation that those rules will be reliably enforced, is the difference between 7,000 people being able to live together at Chital Hayuk or 26 million people being able to live together in Shanghai. The set of expectations we have for how we are going to interact with one another, what the consequences are for transgressing various social norms, sets up a predictability and a stability that allows us to coexist. Um, I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a huge, you know, fan of uh, being overly legal. I think we live in a very litigious age. But for the purists who think about legal theory, I think that there's nothing more anthropological than looking at systems of rules and seeing that our ability to predict and accept the actions of our neighbors, fellow tribesmen, what have you, uh, are aligned and are predictable and, and if they transgress that there will be consequences is what makes it possible to then align larger goals and achieve things that are greater than one 
human can achieve, i.e. build pyramids, uh, feed thousands. Um, yeah, so, so I, I'm particularly fascinated by the role of early law in society, and I just think there's a lot to, to look at there. So, Antera. Antera is, once again, pretty anomalous. Um, in Antera, they wrote everything down. They carved writing into practically every wall in the city. Yet, in the Second Empire, we see no laws. There are no rules, and there were no sets of punishments written down. Yet, they were able to grow from this coalition of tribes that were working together for agricultural success, right, into a city of over 50,000 people. Between the origination of the society and the era of the idiot king, so roughly 3,000 to 5,000 years, there are no laws written down anywhere. Myths, yes. Hero stories, sure. But no laws. Doesn't make sense. Cities, trade, government, specialized workers, record keeping. Those are the five traits in common anthropological study. Those are the five necessary attributes of a civilization. So even without laws as such, Second Empire and Terra qualifies in common anthropological parlance. We have a city, Prime A, dark city, right? We definitely have signs of trade and records of trade, so record keeping, check. And we've been over the caste system, so we know there were specialized workers. Um, oh, somebody pointed out, uh, somebody who's auditing the class online pointed out that I've listed the caste system twice and there were discrepancies. There are big shifts between early, sort of pre-idiot king, second empire, and Terran caste systems, and then it sort of evolved leading into early Third Empire and Terra. So I'll, uh, I don't know when, but at some point I'm going to go over that and make sure that we clarify that. See, somebody's paying attention out there, so you guys should too. <laughs> um, okay, cities, trade, government, specialized workers, record keeping. Uh, we have the specialized workers, so te technically speaking, yeah, this is a civilization, but I hesitate. Why? Why are there no laws? If we look back at Gobleki Tepe, right, the site in southwestern Anatolia, we see something really different. Here, we see a massive site with carved megaliths that clearly required a large group to work together to move, shape, and erect these monumental structures. But no one lived there. And the current theory is that this was a meeting place for nomadic tribes, so no city, no record keeping, no overarching government, not a civilization. But when you look at the images of the structures and the megaliths at Gobleki Tepe, it feels like a civilization. There's an order, there's a, a artistic style, there's evidence of human cooperation on a massive scale. So I am a classicist with a focus in linguistics 
and early literature. I am not an anthropologist. But I think there may be value in updating our notion or our definition of what it is that defines early societies. You guys know that my own feeling is that compassion is the beginning of civilization. Um, and even by that standard, you know, we see cooperation in early Antara, but without laws, can there be compassion? Without rules? I, I don't know. That's an interesting question. Uh, we're going to have to look at that. It's a philosophical question, but still interesting. Um, <clears throat> so yeah, maybe we need to update our definition of civilization. You know, or maybe at this embryonic stage of civilizations that we see in Mesopotamia, even with laws, they, they really couldn't thrive past a certain point. Um, but, you know, there's so much we don't know about the Bronze Age collapse. It's hard to say whether law really had anything to do with the, the collapse. So with the schism that led to the Third Empire, we do start to see laws. You remember the schism is what we describe as the change from the Matoka ritual to the Ratak ritual um, and the subjugation of a huge portion of the population of Dark City and eventually the founding of Prime B, um, the smaller city to the north of Dark City. I was lucky enough to get a pretty good translation of the wall uh, on the Plaza of Ecopa in the south central part of Dark City. It's a later addition to Prime A as the population grew, so it was built right around the time of this transition. And it has some laws carved on its walls. Um, though the laws are separated, some for Antarans and some for the tall ones. Meaning at this point, you know, society has been bifurcated and a large segment of the population has been isolated into what we've described as those, those stables, these kind of dire internment camps. Not a pleasant time, by all accounts. And it's at this point that we're starting to see some kind of rules that are being written down. And the rules that we see, at least in the translations that we have, they don't make a lot of sense. The first rule for Antarans, thou shalt not feel. What does that mean? I don't know. And in another part of translation, uh, a different part of the wall, it says, feel nothing, know all. So that's a huge departure from early Second Empire's acknowledgement of the unknown, right? I mean, we went deep into that. The, the culture seemed to thrive. And philosophically, at least, they had this very uh, open and, and sort of embracing relationship with things that were unknown, with darkness. Um, all of a sudden, the dictate is, feel nothing, know all. I don't know. You know, we're moving from an age that seemed quite harmonious and prosperous 
and we're looking at the end of an age of art and intellect and the beginning of an age of war and terror. But that's just a guess. Um, I emailed you guys the translation that I got on those walls in the Plaza Vicopa. So add that to the other reading for the week. Sorry, what? Yeah, yeah, I hear you, Beth. It, it's a lot of reading, but I think the context here is... Go ahead, Dean Yang. Anything you can say to me, you can say to my students. Is that supposed to be funny? In the hallway. <sighs> okay. Don't worry, everybody. Mommy and Daddy have disagreements, but it doesn't mean we're getting a divorce. What the fuck is going on? What are you hiding from me? First your TA loses her marbles and brandishes a knife in class, then fucking Gary Padakoff makes a huge donation to the university with the only stipulation that your class is reinstated? And now your second TA disappears after stealing a priceless artifact from the archive. Calm down. There's a perfectly reasonable explanation. I mean, maybe it's not reasonable, but there's an explanation. Actually, I don't even know how to explain it. Raquel's parents have reported her missing. They're threatening to sue. Apparently, she disappeared into thin air from the crazy bin, and the staff has no idea how. They can't locate her girlfriend either, the, the Chinese woman. Hi, wrong? Her room is completely cleaned out. Everything is gone, like no one ever lived there. Maybe Chris was right. Right about what? Nothing, never mind. Do you know where any of them are? Have you spoken to them? No. You're done. This class is finished. Ugh. For good this time. Come on. We're almost to Thanksgiving. Just let me finish out the semester so it's not so disruptive for the kids. I let you finish out the course? At this rate, there won't be any students left at Harbridge. I knew it was a bad idea from the beginning, but I rolled over anyways. Not anymore. You didn't roll over. It's in my fucking contract, remember? Grow up. I just never thought that I would see the day that you'd transform into the dusty paper pushers that we fucking hated back when we were in grad school. At least I'm not a self-centered narcissist who steps over the discarded bodies of his students, chasing memories of the spotlight. Okay, are we finished here? I'm afraid so. Then you tell the kids the class is canceled. I'm gonna go home and have a fucking drink. Hey, stay in town, okay? The cops want to interview everyone in the class. Sure. No problem. Hey, Gary, I changed my mind. All right, can you swing by to get me on the way to Toronto and I'll catch you up. You can do that with a private plane, right? Oh, what the fuck? <sighs> Someone broke in and tossed my place. God damn it. Call me back, would you? God. That's a fucking disaster. Hey! Hello? Hey, it's, it's Gary. Open up! Gary? I was literally just leaving you a message. I was always coming here first. How do you think I got where I got? Like, I never take no for an answer. So I'm seeing. Yeah, plus, I've got people on the ground in Toronto already. So you were right to call me. She's there. 
impossible. Things are only impossible until they aren't. So come on. Time's wasted. Chop yeah. Down. Yeah, okay. Let me just pack a couple things. Hey. <laughs> no, I think you're going to need a bigger suitcase. What? We're only going for a night. Surprise. We're taking an extended trip. Pack for a week. And bring your tuxedo. Modes of Thought in Interran Literature. This podcast is made possible by Harbridge University, a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities, the Peeler Prize in Archaeological Literature, and the Harbridge Family, Family Trust, with an in-kind donation and production assistance from Wolf of the Door Studios. For more information and a reading list, please visit modesofthoughtpodcast.com. The Fable and Folly Network, where fiction producers flourish. From the team behind the award-winning Best Fiction Horror Podcast, Nightlight. A new audio drama that brings the southern folklore of true blood and the cosmic horror of Lovecraft Country to your ears. You don't hear that, do you? Afflicted is a tale of hoodoo, a demonic book bound in human flesh, and natural disasters that are anything but natural. Which grave did you get the dirt from? Which grave? Afflicted, a horror thriller audio drama, coming this Halloween thanks to our Indiegogo supporters. Subscribe now to get notified the moment the first episode drops. It's the name.